Thanks for downloading Stuff What You Tell Me. For more information about the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at the Stuff You Team. Be sure to check out our website, www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com, for a reading list and show notes for today's episode. People have been roaming around these parts for thousands of years, in different ways, settling on, living off, fighting over, loving, and detaching themselves and their identities to these lands. The vast majority of these were various tribes of people who would, in the way that history loves misnomers, collectively become known as American Indians. By the early 1850s, the territory that would become Kansas, this huge chunk of land and a part of what was acquired by the United States in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, was home to at least 17,000 Native Americans. The vast majority came from tribes whose heritage in the Great Plains stretched back thousands of years. This included the Potawatomi, the Osage, Kickapoo, Kaur, Delaware, Pawnee, Cheyenne, and Comanche nations, plus many more. In 1830, with the passage of the Indian Removal Act, the federal government under Andrew Jackson had ramped up what had really been an inexorable push since initial colonization to forcibly remove American Indians from the continent's east into the center. These forced relocations of thousands to west of the Mississippi River to what was now known as Indian Territory would become known as the Trail of Tears. Cherokees from Georgia, Choctaws and Chickasaws from Mississippi and others were all removed and pushed into Indian Territory, vaguely seen as existing between the Great Mississippi River and the Appalachian Mountains. Thousands did not survive. The 1834 Indian Trade and Intercourse Act, nowhere near as fun as its name might suggest, forever guaranteed tribes the right to their lands beyond the Mississippi River, or at least until the federal government decided that they wanted to have those lands too. As regards these lands in the 1850s, history mainly remembers the struggle between white Euro-American anti-slavery and pro-slavery activists as they fought over whether or not Kansas would enter the Union as a free state or a slave state. In more recent times, greater focus has also been put on the role of African Americans, both the free and the enslaved, in the unfolding of these events. In this the third episode in a four-part series on the role of rebellion in the abolition of slavery, we will also be focusing on these people, as they are those most relevant to our purpose. But we thought it important to point out at the beginning of this particular story that this is a fight over land that just 20 years previously, the US had promised would remain forever in the hands of the native tribes. What happened, though, in 1854 was that countless people who had never come anywhere near this region began to talk and act as if it was some blank canvas for 1850s US society to paint on, if only they could agree upon what it should look like. It wasn't a blank canvas, but already a myriad kaleidoscope of people, life, culture, and history because tens of thousands of individuals' lives were already deeply intertwined with these lands before they became the focus of national attention. Those people would get little to no voice in the debate over Kansas, 
and their lives would arguably become the most devastatingly affected by the consequences. The influx of removed Native Americans from the original colonies, people suffering all the individual and collective trauma which that process would have brought about, into a region already home to thousands of others, themselves dealing with the encroachment of white settlement, would have caused many tensions and problems. But add to this the fact that Baptists, Quakers, Methodists, and other groups of white settlers were also moving west, often as organized and sponsored missionaries, in an attempt to civilize the natives and help convert them to Christianity. Whether by design or consequence, many natives adopted aspects of the Euro-American culture, incumbent with all its diversity and divisions. What would happen in Kansas in the 1850s in general was a struggle of identity. Who were you? Who were your neighbors? What was your community? And what ideals did your community value? What would these things contribute to the Kansan identity and to the greater U.S. national identity going into the future? These questions would only be answered with violence and bloodshed in these lands. The heart of the matter, as the actual country expanded, was the question of whether the institution of slavery, widely practiced in some states but abolished in others, would be allowed to expand westward too. How did it get to this? Well, this is a really big and complex topic, which directly links and intertwines with multiple other big and complex contemporary topics. So forgive us for skipping over some of the details. We don't have the time, the ability, or the will to go too deeply through a sequence of events around which entire college history courses are devised and delivered. Our aim here is not to labor through the political events of antebellum America, but to get to the stories of people living their lives in the midst of those events. But we do need a little context. So in our typical style of brute force and ignorance, here are what can tend to be the 30 most intense years of American politics, summed up in about 5 minutes, hopefully, maybe 10, maybe 15. The institution of slavery was so entrenched within the culture of the early USA that by the 1840s, abolitionists had largely forsaken any hope of ever ending its practice in the southern slave-dependent states. But as the land of the Louisiana Purchase was, by congressional process, gradually cut off into territories to be settled and made into states, the matter of whether those future states would be slave societies or free societies was there from the beginning. This question was not important merely as an economic one or as a matter of ideology. The very cultural identities of slave states were intrinsically connected to the sustenance of slavery. For someone born, brought up, and enculturated into a slave society, if slavery died, then the very way of life for them and hundreds of thousands of others would also. As messed up as it is from our point of view today, Slavery's preservation for these people was a matter of existential importance, and it was crucial in their minds, in the establishment of the new U.S. national identity. Some northern states, such as Vermont, had entered the Union with no legalized slavery. Most, however, put forward plans such as to phase out slavery over time. 
The national identity being forged in the North did not rely on the preservation of slavery. By 1819, the territory of Missouri was ready to become a state, with the requisite number of voting citizens to move out from being under federal jurisdiction. Missouri, formerly part of Upper Louisiana, already had a slave society and would evidently be a slave state. This worried the northern body politic as southern-based pro-slavery and pro-agricultural representation would now be greater in both the Congress and the Senate. In the House, elected on a basis of popular representation, the higher populations of northern states meant that the South would never reach equal representation. Therefore, in the writing of the Constitution, this imbalance was sought to be eradicated by something called the Three-Fifths Compromise. In slave states, three out of every five slaves was counted as a person to be represented in Congress. The slaves, of course, didn't get to vote on their representation, but their masters and the free voting members of the slave-dependent societies, also known as white men, did. This gave these states around a third more seats in the House, and a third more electoral college seats than they would have had otherwise. In the Senate, however, representation was not based on population, but on statehood. Each state had two senators. The Senate was evenly balanced between free and slave states. If Missouri entered the Union as a slave state, this balance was going to be put out of whack. Politicians around the country wringed their hands at this prospect. A solution was found, however, when the District of Maine, which had been a part of Massachusetts, also petitioned for statehood at around this time. After much wheeling and dealing, the 1820 Missouri Compromise was enacted, which linked the admission of these two states into the Union together. Missouri would be a slave state, Maine a free state. The balance would be kept. The Missouri Compromise also contained a provision that no future states north of the southern border of Missouri, the line at the 3630 parallel, would ever be admitted as a slave state. Common abolitionist sentiment in the north was not about getting rid of slavery at this stage, just about stopping its growth. This line was regarded as something almost holy in the political landscape. It was often referred to as the sacred pledge. A sad fact of human life, however, is that arbitrary lines drawn on a map are only as important as those looking at them consider them to be. There are no lines drawn on the ground, only in people's heads. For the next 30 years at a federal level, the two-party system comprised of the Democrats and the Whigs saw members of both parties begin to wrestle each other over this issue, although the slave states tended towards the Democrats. The Whigs had been formed in the 1820s in reaction to the divisiveness of Democratic President Andrew Jackson, who made many people very mad, with very good reason. But it was during and after the US-Mexican War that the US annexed the Republic of Texas, and grew further again by what was called the Mexican Session which included lands in modern-day California, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming. When gold was struck in California in 1848, people from all over the world, let alone the country, started to swarm there to dig their fortunes. 
Basically, overnight, California's population boom made it ready for statehood. However, so large was this new Western territory that the line of the sacred pledge went right through its middle, east to west. The problems this caused as regarded the expansion of slavery were sought to be tempered by the Compromise of 1850, which two blokes, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, apparently nutted out as they got smashed together on brandy. The Compromise of 1850 was drunk from the beginning, and it should have just gone home. It was merely another attempt at holding together the fragile unity of an ever-increasingly more divided nation. Its terms were thus. California would be a free state, but the boundary of the new Texas acquisition would be pushed back, ceding to slave states the potential for slavery's expansion in the future. The slave trade would be abolished in Washington, D.C., appeasing abolitionists considering that there was an actual slave market not far from the capital. And then the Fugitive Slave Act, which we spoke about in our previous episode on the Underground Railroad, would be enacted, throwing a big and terrifying bone to slavers. The final condition said that in the territories of Utah and New Mexico, the issue of slavery would be decided by popular sovereignty. That is to say, that residents of those territories would be allowed to vote and decide on the issue of whether or not to permit slavery themselves rather than the federal government doing so. In 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was proposed by Stephen A. Douglas and President Franklin Pierce to set into formal motion the process for these territories to be opened up to settlement. Remember the land which federal government had promised would be Indian Territory forever? Well, 20 years later, and they decided that actually, hey, yeah, nah. Sorry, we need it. Now it's ours. Douglas was the chairman of the Committee on Territories and was in a powerful position when it came to the bills concerning expansion that were to be put before the legislature. A lot of his motivation to open up the Kansas and Nebraska territories was his dream to build a transcontinental railroad from Illinois to California. The railroad would need farmers living near it, to use it, but slave states wanted to ensure that slavery would be permitted on this railroad and in the lands that it connected to. After more political wrangling, Douglas advocated for the doctrine of popular sovereignty to apply in the new territories too. His belief in the right for self-government was the basis of his dream to become president. He thought that by taking the divisive issue of slavery's expansion away from the federal government, he would save the Union in the process. Guess what? He doesn't. He doesn't save it. With this act, the sacred pledge of the Missouri Compromise had effectively been cast asunder. One massive consequence was that it killed the Whig Party. Yep, just shot him dead. Divided by North and South over the issue amongst its members, Northern politicians were in uproar over the party's complicity in trampling on the sacred pledge. Over the next weeks, countless grassroots meetings were held across the North by disenfranchised abolitionists who, almost overnight, formed a party with one primary strategic aim, stopping the spread of slavery. They called it the Republican Party. The rhetoric on both sides of the question of slavery, which had never been pleasant, 
became even more hostile and vitriolic. From churches and town halls to the offices and seats of the capital, with party loyalty now aligned to it, people stood by what they saw as their way of life, by their principles and their beliefs. They also, as they saw it, rebelled against assertions that brought their pride and integrity into question. For anti-slavery activists, was their country really a free society when it was under the control of what became known as the malicious slave power, to whom so many presidents and other federal politicians belonged? For slaveholders, and for the southern populations who felt that their culture was under threat, and whose identity was so inextricably linked with the institution, could they bear the infringement on their rights to property from northern radicals? This right, after all, was protected by the Fifth Amendment. These northern lawbreakers wanted nothing more than to violate that. From this perspective, they had to be stopped. Thus, the race for Kansas began. Popular sovereignty meant that whichever side could get the most settlers there so as to weigh in on the construction of a new state constitution would win in determining the fate of slavery in the territory, and therefore the future of slavery's expansion in the country. Kansas would become the first real battlefield over the conflict of slavery which had been brewing for over half a century. A militia-style war along the banks of the Missouri River will break out, enticing all kinds of people to rebel against and resist all kinds of things, for all kinds of reasons. Truth be told, the bleeding begun in Kansas will not stop, but will eventually hemorrhage into the US Civil War. Before that, however, somewhere between 60 and 200 people will be dead in the new territory, and one abolitionist will have become so radicalized that he will famously vow to die fighting for his cause. This story is a tale of identity, and it is about the lengths people will go to to ensure and solidify the validity of their own. Therefore, we will tell it from two different semi-fictionalized perspectives. One will be an anti-slavery settler from the Northeast, and the other from a pro-slavery Virginian. We have built these characters up, by combining a lot of different primary source material that we have found. You're going to hear some messed up ideas and justifications for slavery that are thankfully recognized as repugnant in our time. In quotes and language we use, drawn from those contemporary sources, you're going to hear terminology and nomenclature that today is rightfully recognized as racist. The racism of the time will not only come out of pro-slavery activism and rhetoric, but also from the voices of some anti-slavery-minded people who were racist to their core, and who fueled their abolitionist and anti-slavery activism with that racism. Some of this may be jarring and defensive, but to understand this conflict, and the role that rebellion and resistance played in it, we need to understand the people who formed, espoused, and acted upon these ideas. Like all people everywhere, they developed their opinions based on who they were and what socioeconomic context they came from. We 100% don't endorse their views, but we recognize their place in understanding wider human history. So with all that in mind, I'm pretty stoked that we got through that context in only 14 minutes. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me.
This is the third part of our series, Abolishing the Norm, about the role of rebellion in the abolition of slavery. This episode is called, No Place Like Home. This episode is brought to you by vegetarianism. Vegetarianism. It's not as square as you might think. From the moment we are born, we are told we must obey. It's a mistake to rebel. Treason to defy. Change is a dreaded thing, until it's not. These are the stories of those who disobey and their acts of defiance, world-changing or inconsequential. The characters who forge their own paths and the cycles of change driven by women and men willing to stand up, look authority in the face and say, stuff you and stuff what you tell me. It is the 29th of August, 1854, and you and around 60 other people are standing on a train platform in Boston, preparing for a journey to the western frontier. Your group has been organized by the New England Emigrant Aid Company to travel to Kansas to set up a free state community. It is mostly comprised of young men who are eagerly chatting to each other about their excitement in moving west in the search of a new life and new opportunities. Some have brought their families. The wives sit to the side, chatting to each other, watching as the children run around between the throngs of people. A few older men sit quietly, waiting anxiously for the sign to board the train. More than a few times, you hear men boasting of how they were excited to fight for their principles and show those pro-slavery southern brutes a thing or two. You feel drawn to them. You're not a moderate abolitionist or a mere free soiler, but a full-blown anti-slavery radical who believes in black and female suffrage. You are a literate and religious young man, versed in the passages found in the pages of the worn Bible that you carry with you at all times. Coming from Vermont, you grew up working on farms, herding sheep, and more than once you had helped runaway slaves who were nearing the end of their trip north on the Underground Railroad, going to Canada. In 1843, when you were still a young man, trying to figure out his way in the world, you had, out of curiosity really, attended the Great Convention in Ferrisburg, where you saw a man named Frederick Douglass speak. You had read in the newspaper about disturbances at a speech he gave a few days earlier in Middlebury, where college students had picketed and attacked those who were speaking but you couldn't understand their outrage when you watched this riveting, young, runaway slave speak. You remember the goosebumps running down your neck when you heard him say, Much as you boast of your freedom and republicanism in this state, high as are your hills, deep as are your vales, there is not an inch of land in all your state where Frederick Douglass can stand safe. From that moment on, You had been converted to the slave's cause. Life on your farm in Vermont had become difficult in the previous few years. You had barely been scraping together enough money to feed your family, and the allure of the potential to start afresh in the western states was proving impossible to ignore. You had decided that the perfect place to begin a new life was Wisconsin. But when you mentioned this to your family's doctor, he implored you to delay your journey for a week 
since cholera was at that time sweeping through Chicago, Cincinnati, and other big western cities. Not particularly wishing to get cholera, you took your doctor's advice and spent the week off reading the newspaper and considering your future. One day, during this week off, whilst running errands in town, you saw people standing around a map of Kansas, handing out pamphlets from some body called the New England Emigrant Aid Company. When one was pressed into your hand, you read about the great climate and soil in Kansas, as well as offers to give reduced rates for tickets to go there. And an agent from the company would even accompany you to this land of promise. There, the company was busy setting up towns, churches, sawmills, and schools for the settlers from New England. A fire suddenly burned inside you. All week, you had been catching up on news and reading with disgust about how the southern slave power which controlled Congress had managed to repeal the Missouri Compromise, and they were now trying to extend their insidious institution into these new western lands. All of a sudden, the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the sudden surge to get voters there gave you an opportunity to not only try and better your life, to go and stake claims of land early so as to then sell them almost immediately on to the constant flow of settlers that would doubtless start streaming in, but also to help spread the freedom that you believed everybody in the country should enjoy. It didn't take long for you to forget about Wisconsin. So with this newfound fervor, you would set off to Boston, kissing your wife and children goodbye and promising to write to them often and send them money regularly. Upon arriving in Boston, you go straight to the offices of this NEEAC, the Emigrant Aid Company, and there you meet the agent who would be accompanying you to Kansas, one Samuel Pomeroy. He warmly takes you by the hand and promises that he would be a friend upon whom you could always rely. Whilst you find his enthusiasm to you a little strange, you quickly warm up to the fellow, especially when you hear him speaking about how together you and your fellow settlers will be helping Kansas be saved from the blighting, withering, deadening, damning influence of American slavery. Oh yeah, that's more like it. So after all that, here you have come to be on the platform of the train depot in Boston, watching the steaming locomotive being loaded up with goods waiting for your journey westward to begin. A crowd of curious people has been gathering to watch the spectacle of this group of settlers heading off to advance the cause of freedom. You listen as the secretary of the NEEAC, one Dr. Webb, announces that one of the great American poets, the Quaker and abolitionist John Greenleaf Whittier, has written a poem just for you settlers. You watch in amused disbelief as placards with the words of the poem are handed around the crowd and held up. Dr. Webb requests that everyone join in the song, and signals to a small band of musicians in your group who strike up the melody of Old Lang Syne. Together, the crowd sings the words. We cross the prairie as of old, the pilgrims cross the sea, to make the west as they the east, the homestead of the free. We go to rear a wall of men on freedom's southern line, and plant beside the cotton tree, the rugged northern pine. You find yourself caught up in the moment, and a tear rolls down your cheek as the last chords are played. You are sure that one day, these words will be chiseled into the solid marble monument to freedom which surely will be erected here. After a final few tearful farewells, the 60 settlers clamber aboard the train, 
As the great engine of the locomotive starts driving the carriages westward, the band begins blasting out, Oh Susanna, don't you cry, and three cheers ring out from the crowd. This train full of New Englanders is off to do their part to ensure that the West will be free. Just as that train departs from Boston in the north, you could alternatively be hundreds of miles southwest, a farmer in Virginia, with some vastly different views to those held by the people aboard. Now, you are a man born in the south, who moved to the west of Virginia at 22 years old. After having worked as a sailor since you were 17, in your time at sea, you saw much of the world, and you've actually made a decent way of it since returning to work the land. Purchasing and utilizing farmland, following a path akin to what would, over the years, turn into the general society's imagined highway to the American dream. You consider yourself a self-made man. Success in this new republic is almost universally measured by the acquisition of wealth and property. You've become relatively successful over just about 10 years back in Virginia, owning a small farm, machinery, and three slaves, a sister and her two brothers, which you had recently acquired as payment for a loan you had given. You always keep a keen eye on the news coming out of Washington. You and your neighbors, when you meet in the saloon at the end of the day, cheer together at the news of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Chatter is rife about popular sovereignty, and how Southerners must go to the newly opened territories. How, if we let the Northerners have the majority vote there, they will take from us all our God-given and self-evident freedoms. You've noticed across your life how much more meaning the terms Southerners and Northerners have come to have in their everyday use. Not that they weren't there before, but now, amongst you and your companions, your identification as Southerners has really come to the forefront over your identification as just Virginians. You don't decide immediately, but after about six months and much discussion with everyone you know, and some you don't, you make the choice to move and go to Kansas. You begin to make preparations, and after another three months, you have sold up your farm and machinery, loaded the rest of your belongings onto a wagon, and set out to seek greater and greener pastures in the name of liberty. Your darkies are good ones. They work hard and you treat them well, as you would any working animal. They are happy, you can tell, and you bet they are excited to venture into the wide expanse of the future with you. Kansas is due west. When you set off in the wagon, along the way you pass towns where others are obviously making preparations to also leave in that direction. On the road, you see great clusters of slaves chained up and walking behind infuriatingly slow processions of wagons and the owners. Sometimes you are held up behind them for hours until the next town even, and a moment where they can all pull over and your single wagon can squeeze past them. It takes you about a month, including some rest days, to reach St. Louis, Missouri. You pick up companions along the way, other pioneers embarking on this adventure. You hear how radical abolitionists are being funded by rich northerners to stream into Kansas from the northern states. You hadn't quite realized what a race this is until you get closer and closer to St. Louis. And the intensity of the discussion all around 
about the threat of abolition becomes more and more heated in inns and taverns and saloons where you take respite. The northern settlers are armed, having been supplied by their wealthy industrial benefactors, hell-bent on ripping your world apart, and rumour has it, the 20,000 more of them are on the way. In St. Louis, you decide to rest a while and also to hire out your slaves temporarily to some other masters, as you want to scope out exactly what is happening in Kansas before you bring them there. You've heard stories about abolitionists operating in the territory, and you don't want to risk bringing your most valuable possessions just yet. With those affairs in order, you continue your journey following the Missouri River towards the frontier. When you arrive in a town called Independence, it is absolutely chock full of other southern pioneers, and the excitement is palpable. The people in this town are extremely hostile towards any stranger, but as soon as you let them know you are sound on the goose, that is, pro-slavery, their demeanor changes completely, and you are welcomed heartily. The next morning, you watch as a slave dealer drives his darkies through town towards the southern market. Suddenly, one of them makes a break for it and pushes past you in a mad dash for freedom. A few men nearby shout for him to stop, but the Negro pays no attention and rapidly approaches some cover nearby. His master coolly lifts his rifle, takes aim, fires, and a moment later, the fleeing black man falls dead to the ground. You are sickened by the brutality. You've always believed slaves should be treated well. But the law is the law, and nothing done here was illegal. So, that night you lodge with Johnny Cake, the head chief of the Delaware Indians in Kansas. He speaks English very well, and is an enthusiastic member of the Methodist Church. He gives a very long and extraordinary grace before and after dinner, especially considering that all your eating is cornbread and bacon, and you go to sleep that night thinking that If all the Indians around here are as tame as him, then life on the frontier might not be so bad. The next day you finally arrive in Leavenworth. It is barely a shanty town with a few thrown up houses, many semi-finished or just begun houses, a couple of stores and a so-called hotel, barely a large wooden shack in which you find lodgings. Afterwards, you seek out the closest thing to a saloon a frail structure run by the sporting fraternity. At this watering hole, a dimly lit room rammed with tables and a single bar, at all of which men drink, talk, and it seems, above all, gamble. All around you, men are playing faro, roulette, and poker, throwing around large sums of money. You order a drink and strike up conversation with the fellow next to you, who begins to tell you about this place. Sitting on the Delaware Reserve, The town is technically on Indian territory, and the Missourian settlers are not there legally. But they've steadfastly ignored any official warning to decamp, orders which are never enforced anyway. It's a lawless place, but for the authority wielded by the sporting fraternity, who own the bar and most of the guns. These men are either southern settlers like you or farmers who come from stock that have lived in Missouri slave society for decades, more and more settlers having arrived since its admission as a state in 1820. They are adamant about stopping the free state voters in Kansas. Plans are being hatched to go en masse into the territory and vote when the time comes. Apparently, 
Just such plans are being made in settlements all along the river. If enough of you go, then the popular sovereignty of Kansas will be of your making. Sitting at this ramshackle bar that feels like it will collapse if you lean on it too much, you ponder what the man here has been saying. But your thoughts are interrupted by an explosion of shouting and loud bangs. A man goes shooting across the small, dark hovel and crashes into the wall. The barkeep pulls a rifle up from behind the bar and points it towards the whole scene. Everyone has stopped, and most have their guns drawn towards the offender, who staggers in a corner. The barkeep nods his head, and two men jump up, accost the man, and drag him outside. The sounds of their fists beating down on him, as well as his stifled groans, can be heard through the thin walls. But the chatter and the gaming starts up again, and soon, they are indiscernible. You catch eyes again with the man next to you, who gives you a look to make you understand that this is the way of things here. He introduces himself as a carpenter from Kentucky called Moses Young. He has a trusting nature and what seems a sound business mind. After discussion, you agree to enter into a partnership where you will go out and stake claims and he will sell them on at massive profit to new settlers. This is a moment of no return for you. You are committed now to invest your life and the lives of your possessions into the new territory of Kansas. For three days, you and the 60-odd other people from New England have been camping by a beautiful spring of pure water half a mile away from the Quaker Shawnee Mission. The mission was built for the education and instruction of the Shawnee Indians, and has a thousand acres of land under cultivation. This country seems as promising as the pamphlets you read back home had described, and your band had pitched tents and spent the last few days hunting and getting used to this brand new lifestyle. Several of the women were cross at the inaction, with the kids overheating in the late summer sun, but the two agents from the NEAC, who have taken on the titles Governor Pomeroy and Governor Robinson, have gone ahead to scout out the best location at which to set up a permanent settlement. As the sun begins to set over the Great Plains, the two agents ride back into the camp, with three great cheers erupting at their return. They announce that they have found the most excellent spot in the territory at which to build a new settlement, near the intersection of the Wakarusa and Kansas rivers. A meeting of the entire camp is called, and immediately... You vote to accept their proposals and set off the next morning. Three more hearty cheers erupt at the close of the meeting, and spirits are high as you settle down for the night. The next morning the camp is struck, the fires are put out, and at 7am you all bid farewell to those at the Shawnee Mission, and travel onwards. After four days, you finally reach the junction of the two great rivers and continue on five miles before reaching the site of your new home. To your right, the rolling Kansas River. In front, behind, and to your left, nothing but endless bounding prairies, where the prairie hens have been building their nests and rearing their young for centuries. This is truly a lovely place. But then there is all bustle and confusion. It takes less than 10 minutes for the settlement to become a sea of tents, with fires springing up in front of them all and everybody radiating with the happiness of working together in this glorious endeavor. You spend the first few days cutting and drying the grass 
so as to sleep on something a little more comfortable than just the hard ground and starting to break ground for your new houses. The first moment of rest and silence comes on Sunday when no work is done. You should be at church and feel a little guilty that you're not, but there hasn't been time to build a church yet. The next day, work begins on the first real building of the settlement. Posts are driven into the ground and the frame of a building about 50 feet long is created using poles. Over the next week, the framework is finished and thatch is placed over the roof. Before construction is even complete, it is being used as a boarding house for migrants coming from the north to have a temporary place to live whilst their own homes are being built. It quickly becomes dubbed the Free State Hotel, boldly announcing your settlement's position on slavery. The beds are made of straw spread on the ground with a buffalo robe as a blanket and a pair of boots as a pillow. It's a humble beginning, but soon you are sure this will become a thriving town. One evening, while sitting around a fire with other pioneers, the chat turns to encounters some of your folk have been having with Missourians. Rumors have been flying around all over the settlement that armed gangs of them have been spotted roaming, scoping out what was going on, threatening and intimidating people. One man chuckles about how the Missourians are nothing to be worried about. You just have to deal with them with a bit of bravado. He tells you his story. Today, as several of us were busily engaged in erecting a log house, a band of ten or a dozen men came up to us, and after holding conversation between themselves for several moments, demanded that we leave the house and claim, or they would kill every one of us. Not being near their number, we were in quite a puzzle what to do. Finally, a green-looking Yankee, one of our company, spoke out and said, See here, strangers, if you know what is best for you, you wouldn't be often stopping long in these diggings. I've got a machine in this tent that I can shoot you all in less than no time. I turn a crank, and my boy pours in powder and shot, and every time I turn the crank, it shoots. The fellow sang out to his son, Tim, get the machine in order. Pour in a keg of powder and a hundred pounds of buckshot. Well, boys, would you believe it? Them fellows left the claim in double quick time. Everybody laughs heartily at the pusillanimity of the Missourians, and several even shout out, Good! 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 The next Sunday morning, with the new boarding house nearly finished, it is decided to hold a public religious worship there. At 9 o'clock, the entire camp and those who have settled within a few miles assemble in the large building to listen to the settlement's devout minister, Reverend Lunn of New Jersey. It is a solemn scene with men, women, and children, all more than 2,000 miles from their native lands, bowing down to the throne of the great ruler of the universe, acknowledging him as their king. Here, so far away from the comfort and refinements of civilized life, it seems necessary to put your trust in a power higher than man. The religious services give everyone renewed vigor and spirit, and the work continues at an accelerated pace. This isn't a settlement anymore. This is now a town, and every town needs a name. Meetings are set up in which names are proposed, and finally two candidates are chosen upon which a vote will be held. Those names are Wakarusa, in honor of the nearby river, and Lawrence, in honor of a prominent abolitionist and the secretary of the NEEAC, Amos Adams Lawrence. 
After the vote, it is officially proclaimed that the town will henceforth be known as Lawrence. You're a little bit disappointed by this. You think Lawrence is a boring name and voted for Wakarusa. Anyway, although you and your band of New Englanders have set up this town and claimed the land for yourself, it's still officially Indian territory. And there are also pro-slavery men setting up all around you with competing claims. One of these is a Mr. Baldwin of Missouri, who is not at all happy about having a Yankee settlement on land he claims as his. He is living in a tent set up a few hundred yards east of a new home that you're helping to build. One day, just as you are sitting down for dinner, a friend of yours yells to come quickly, for there's about to be a fight. You grab your rifle and run outside to see Baldwin standing next to his tent, which is lying prostrate on the ground, evidently having been knocked over by somebody. Baldwin has his rifle in hand and shakes it about furiously, screaming that he'll get enough men to clear all you Yankees out of his country. When Baldwin leaves, you help some people erect a new tent where his have been, and they store all their things inside it and spend the night there. The next day, though, Baldwin returns with about 70 other pro-slavery men, one of whom gallops into Lawrence with a note saying that if you don't remove this tent in 30 minutes, they will remove it for you. Governor Robinson sends one back saying, you molest our property at your peril. If they want to fight, they're going to get one. Governor Robinson orders everyone to collect their shotguns, rifles, pistols, and every kind of firearm and weapon array in battle formation and shoot at anyone who tries to touch the tent. One man asks whether they should shoot at them or above them as a warning. Governor Robinson replies that he should be ashamed to shoot at a man and not hit him. You stand in formation ready for a shootout and things have become intense over the location of these tents. But after what feels like a very long half an hour, the Missourians, they back down and they leave. Lawrence, Kansas, will live to see another day. So both our settlers are here in Kansas and have begun to establish themselves in communities which are directly aligned to the causes that they both represent. The tensions at this point are running high, with small-scale standoffs flaring up. But as of yet, no outrageous violence, fraud, or murder. Coming up after this short ad break, outrageous violence, fraud, and murder. After agreeing to go into business with Moses Young, you decide to return to St. Louis, this time by boat down the Missouri to collect your slaves and bring them back to Leavenworth, from out of which your expeditions into Kansas will now be based. The boat ride takes nearly six days, and the soft breath of spring is in the air. A spring, you think to yourself, that comes so suddenly and so sweetly in the southwestern states of the Union that the trip down the river is absolutely delightful. After 10 days in St. Louis, and having bought a wagon and harness, you gather your $2,000 capital savings, your dog, your darkies, and re-embark the boat to go, this time, upstream. There are distinctly different groups of people on the boat journey this time. Specifically, two groups. Those who are sound on the goose, in the majority, and those goddamn free staters, who keep quiet and to themselves. 
When you arrive at Leavenworth, the levee by the river is full of what seems to be the town's whole population, around 200 people. The free staters are abused and spat upon as they disembark and they are searched vigorously for arms, as too is the entire boat, but only as concerns the northern extremists. You and your kind are at liberty to pass. In your absence, Moses has arranged boardings and prospects for hiring out your slaves. This gives you a consistent income, with which you will be able to live fairly comfortably. Your slaves give you status here that you enjoy. Virginia was so beset with huge plantation and slave owners possessing up to multiple hundreds of slaves that there was not much special about having three. But the Missouri Slave Society is more defined by small-scale slave ownership, in which by no means could everybody take part, given the initial capital required. Even walking from the river through town to your boardings, followed by your chattel, you can feel the eyes of the residents follow your procession. In Leavenworth, the income brought in by the hire of your slaves gives you an independence and a freedom and a status that you will never forget. But that independence and freedom is constantly under threat from these Yankees coming from New England with their abolitionist ways. The election for the territorial legislature is looming, and the excitement and tension is building throughout Kansas and the towns on the Missouri border. You have heard that vigilantes in Missouri have been interrogating anyone with a northern accent about where they're headed. And if the answer is Kansas, they've been dissuaded from continuing in whatever way necessary. Yet still more of them continue to arrive in the territory every day. And there is a genuine fear that perhaps these outsiders will stop popular sovereignty from delivering the correct outcome on election day, a pro-slavery legislature. You find it absurd that these outsiders, these people just coming from thousands of miles across the country, will be able to vote in the upcoming election. In order to vote, one must be a resident of the territory. According to Territorial Governor Andrew Reader, residency is the actual dwelling or inhabiting in the territory to the exclusion of any other present domicile or home, coupled with the present bona fide intention of remaining permanently for the same purpose. Sounds like a load of... Hornswoggle to you. During the election in November for a delegate to Congress, a lot of Missourian men had crossed the border to vote in a pro-slavery candidate, which gives you some comfort that perhaps that might happen again. A few weeks before the election for the legislature, you read an article from the ex-attorney general of Missouri, Benjamin Stringfellow arguing that it is perfectly legal for Missourians to vote in the Kansas legislature and that he will be leading men into Kansas on election day himself from St. Joseph, Missouri to do just that one more time. You get excited. St. Joseph is just north of Leavenworth on the other side of the river. You resolve to do your patriotic duty and help. You will go and join him. On your way north out of town, you ride past Fort Leavenworth held by a regiment of U.S. cavalry and some companies of infantry. Moses Young had told you that when you were away in St. Louis, the Sioux Indians had been causing trouble near town, and there had been a big fight with many of them killed. When you ride past the fort, you can see quite clearly a lot of them crouching on the ground, wrapped in colorful blankets to protect them from the still bitterly cold morning air. These are the lucky ones. Normally, they're all just killed. After a day of hard riding and a quick boat ride across the river, you arrive in St. Joseph, Missouri, on the eve of the Kansas election. 
It seems as though the entire town is standing in a central square in front of a small stage, waiting for Benjamin Stringfellow to appear. The atmosphere is electric, as a stern, powerful-looking man with a fantastic moustache strides up and begins to speak. He says, I tell you to mark every scoundrel that is in the least tainted with free soilism or abolitionism and exterminate him. Neither give nor take quarter from the damned rascals. I propose to mark them in this house and on the present occasion so you may crush them out. To those who have qualms of conscience as to violating laws, state or national, the crisis has arrived when such impositions must be disregarded as your rights and property are in danger. And I advise one and all to enter every election district in Kansas in defiance of Rita and his vile myrmidons and vote at the point of the bowie knife and the revolver. Neither give or take quarter as our cause demands it. The crowd erupts into great cheers. And you and a group of men nearby share a bottle of whiskey, further inflaming your emotions and anti-abolitionist passions. When you're good and drunk, a man nearby starts organizing a posse. You love a posse. And soon you and some men cross back into Kansas by boat and gallop through the darkness, visiting the homes of election judges along the way. You let them know that you've organized some good Missouri men to take their jobs tomorrow. But if they decide to show up to work anyway, they will be hung. By around 9am, you're delirious after the night of drunken rampaging south down the river. And you've linked up with about 300 men, led by one Sam Jones. Together, you ride into the town of Bloomington. And with your flags hoisted and guns displayed, you march up to the log cabin serving as a polling station and demand to be allowed to vote. When the judge at the window declares that to be eligible to vote, you must be a resident, not a border ruffian. A voice in the crowd yells out, We've been here at least a few minutes, and that seems good enough. When you are refused again, the cabin window is defiantly shut. One group fetch some levers and they begin to pry at the corner of the house, managing to lift it up before dropping it back down, threatening to bring the whole house down upon the heads of everyone inside and kill them for denying you your rights. You and your kin lose your patience and you smash in the windows, pointing your guns and bowie knives at the men inside. Don't shoot! There are pro-slavery men inside, yells one voice from the cabin. Jones steps forward, pulls out his pocket watch, and tells them that they have five minutes to resign, or they will all die. When the time elapses, he gives them one more minute. Suddenly, the door flings open from the inside, and one of those inside runs into the crowd with the ballot box, yelling, Hurrah for Missouri! By the end of the day, more than 6,000 votes have been cast despite the fact that only 2,905 eligible voters live in the territory. Around 5,400 of those 6,000 votes are for pro-slavery candidates. Popular sovereignty is working out a treat. A few months after the election, you read an article in the St. Louis, Missouri Republican, which suggests that whilst traveling to Washington, D.C., the territorial governor, Reader, had called Benjamin Stringfellow the man who had given such a great speech about Missourians' right to vote, a frontier ruffian. And he'd said this to the president. Although Rita denied using those exact words, he did admit to Stringfellow 
that he might have intimated that he was something other than a gentleman. You feel with a glowing pride when you read Stringfellow's response and the continued interaction between the two men. Then, sir, you uttered a falsehood, and I demand of you the satisfaction of a gentleman. I very much question your right to that privilege, for I do not believe you to be a gentleman, but nevertheless give you the opportunity to vindicate your title to that character by allowing you to select such friends as you may please, and I will do the same, and we will step out here and settle the matter as gentlemen do. Reader, I cannot go. I am no fighting man. Stringfellow, then I will have to treat you as I would any other offensive animal. And with that, he knocked Rita down with his fist. The architects of popular sovereignty had thought that their solution to the country's division was a practically and ideologically sound one. However, Little thought was put into the electoral process itself. As you had seen in March, during the election of the territorial legislature, hordes of Missourians had flooded across the border and taken control of the ballot boxes. You would guess that about a thousand of them had flooded into your free state enclave in Lawrence that morning, armed with knives, rifles, and even two cannons. There they had voted, and then stood around menacingly for the rest of the day, intimidating and cursing at anyone, any of you anti-slavery settlers who dared tried to vote. You remember how you had linked arms with Governor Robinson, and together walked through the crowd of Missourians defiantly to the polling booth. You weren't attacked, but it felt like you would be. The outrage in Lawrence is palpable. Obviously, the election has been a sham. This is a town that has been expressly set up for the purpose of being anti-slavery. Its centerpiece building is called the Free State Hotel. Yet, according to the official results, the pro-slavery candidate in Lawrence received three times as many votes as the anti-slavery one. In the end, 37 out of 39 candidates elected throughout the territory were pro-slavery. You're not sure what the result would have been had the elections been run fairly, but you are certain that if this election was an exercise in popular sovereignty, then the only will it expressed was that of the Missourians. Governor of Kansas Territory, Andrew Reeder, is shocked by the widespread fraud and declares that special elections must be held in six districts, five of which then return anti-slavery candidates. When the legislature convenes, the heavily outnumbered anti-slavery candidates either depending on who you ask, resign or are ousted by their pro-slavery colleagues. Everybody around you starts calling it the bogus legislature. Governor Rita demands that they meet at Pawnee, a remote town far away from population centers, but conveniently close to large tracts of land that he himself owns. The bogus legislature refuses, and then they set up at Shawnee Methodist Mission. They then petitioned President Pierce to dismiss Reader for what they call illegal land speculation. By this stage, it's clear that Reader has no authority over the pro-slavery lot anymore. There are stories that he'd even been beaten up by one of them. So it comes as no surprise when he is sacked. Still, you can't help but think that the slave power's grip over Kansas is ever tightening. Things only get worse when you start reading newspaper reports about laws the bogus legislature starts passing. The Offences Against Slave Property Act, which 
everybody calls the Black Law, makes it an offence punishable by death to help any runaway slave, including those coming from other states and territories. Inciting rebellion among slaves, free Negroes or mulattoes, or aiding and assisting in any such rebellion is also made punishable by death. Resisting any officer trying to arrest a slave is punishable by two years of hard labor. Publishing or printing any written materials which might produce dangerous disaffection among slaves is punishable by five years. Just saying or writing that Persons have not the right to hold slaves in this territory can get you two years of hard labor. Suddenly, just being anti-slavery is against the law. In the face of this threat, you and all anti-slavery settlers throughout the territory start to organize, and in July, you are sent as a representative from Lawrence to a convention of free staters in nearby Big Springs. Here, Anti-slavery settlers from around the territory come together to discuss exactly what should now be done. You are amazed by the division of opinion amongst people about the race issue. You would assume that all free staters would be like those of you in Lawrence, full-blown radical abolitionists believing in liberty and justice for all. But here, you come across people advocating for Kansas to be free, but only for white people. They don't want to have to compete with free black settlers or released slaves for jobs. You are disgusted by this, and you don't see how you can ever work with these people. So you return to Lawrence shortly after, and someone a little less radical is sent in your place. Eventually, the convention creates the Free State Party, and by October 1855, they have created the so-called Topeka Constitution, which prohibits slavery yet also excludes black people from settling in the territory. You find this an entirely dissatisfying compromise. Tensions with Missourians and other pro-slavery settlers keep mounting as winter approaches. The territory is slipping into chaos with daily reports of armed holdups, violent beatings, and even shootouts between opposing forces. Even disregarding the growing civil violence and conflict, as a farmer, you and others are becoming increasingly concerned about the community's preparations for winter. Many of your fellow settlers have little experience in producing food, and with the added challenge of the threat from border ruffians, the harvest yield in general has been very poor. Clearly, also, not enough wood has been cut and stored to dry, and too many houses remain unfinished, illness has also stricken down more than a few who have been unable to complete building their homesteads. In late November, you read in a newspaper that a pro-slavery man named Franklin Coleman had shot dead a free stater named Charles Dow. After an apparent dispute about some land just a few miles south of Lawrence in Douglas County, Coleman had reportedly disappeared over the border into Missouri with his family after the shootout. The sheriff of Douglas County was a man named Sam Jones, the same guy who had led a posse of Missourians into Kansas and hijacked some polling stations back in March. You fume at the apparent ease with which the slave power is able to get away with murder. A few nights later, a man comes galloping into town on horseback and breathlessly recounts that the murdered Dow's landlord, a well-known abolitionist named Jacob Branson, has just been arrested by Sheriff Jones and some deputies for breaching the peace. 
This is too much to take. A frenzied discussion ensues, and you and about 15 others decide to gather up whatever arms you can, jump on your horses, and gallop down to intervene. It's wet, it's cold and dark as you charge across the plains, and around midnight the two posses confront each other on Blanton's Bridge, crossing the Wakarusa River. What's up? One of the men from the opposing side says. The guy next to you has obviously got some adrenaline flowing because he quickly blurts out, that's what we want to know, before accidentally shooting his gun into the air. Everybody looks at him, surprised, and although he is clearly embarrassed, he keeps up a defiant air. Is Branson with you? He asks the pro-slavery group. I'm here and I'm being held prisoner, comes the response from a man across the way. Suddenly, three or four of your men speak out at once. Come over here to your friends, you hear clearly. Branson hesitates, and then you hear his response. They say they'll shoot me if I do. Then let them shoot and be damned, we can shoot too, one of your men retorts. Sheriff Jones comes forward on his horse. I am the sheriff of Douglas County, and I have an arrest warrant for this man for burning down cabins and disturbing the peace, and I must serve it. The situation is now critical. Suddenly you speak up. We don't know any Sheriff Jones of Douglas County, just one of Missouri by that name. The only laws we know are our guns. The sheriff and his men stare you down, but you all stare back, pistols and rifles ready. And for a moment, you worry that perhaps you had overplayed your hand. You know you look tough on the outside, but inside your guts are swirling. The sheriff's guts, it would seem, however, are of even less fortitudinous lining. He backs down and signals to his men to release the prisoner. Branson jumps on the back of your horse, and together your band gallops off into the night, back to Lawrence. As dawn breaks the next day, you and your posse begin to realize what you had actually just done. You had stopped an appointed officer of the law from carrying out his duty. You had held him at gunpoint and then abducted his prisoner, taking him back to Lawrence. This is going to have dire consequences. The town prepares for a siege. Trenches are dug. Weapon caches are prepared. Messengers are sent out to other settlements nearby, asking for reinforcements and help. Branson and his rescuers, including yourself, cannot stay here. You would only be increasing the danger for everybody in Lawrence if you did. So you spread out and disperse into the surrounding countryside, laying low but keeping your eyes and ears open so that you can learn what Sheriff Jones will do next. It doesn't take long for a huge force of Missourians led by Sheriff Jones and also David Atchison, a notorious border ruffian and, believe it or not, US Senator for Missouri, to descend on Lawrence and put it to siege. The Missourians are drinking hard and itching for a fight. The new governor of Kansas, Wilson Shannon, who's replaced Rita, arrives on the scene and starts frantically moving from one side to the other, obviously trying to negotiate a settlement. The citizens of Lawrence claim they have done nothing wrong. Branson wasn't from there. They have no idea where he is, neither whoever the people were who had conspired to and executed his escape, for that matter. The town of Lawrence has broken no laws. So why is this horde of Missourian ruffians now at its gate with threats of violence? As this is going on, you and a couple of others are keeping a low profile a few miles outside of town. You are in a small clearing surrounded by a fair cover of bur oak and sycamore, 
From here, you can still maintain a fairly decent scope of the wide, rolling, grassy plains all around, lest any undesirable company appear. Should they do so, you will see them from afar. When someone signals the approach of a group of strangers, you rush to look out at their approach. You cannot tell whether the solemn-looking old man at the front of the group could ever possibly be anything but undesirable. His face, almost rock-like, is stern and fierce. Hair that shows threads of having been formerly pitch black is now almost completely white, including in his bushy beard that is clearly already several months old. Rifles cock, and you and the others all gather defensively to meet the approaching party. The old man is flanked by four younger men, all of whom are armed to the teeth. They do not raise their weapons, but neither do they make any effort at the concealment of the rifle and two pistols that each of them carry. They walk straight up to you, and their leader begins to speak. He says that his name is John Brown. He is an abolitionist, and that he and his sons are on the way to Lawrence to help defend the town in the name of freedom. You warn them that just up the road is a bridge held by Missourians. Brown just shrugs, and obviously a man of few words, continues on, his men along with him. You and another discreetly follow them, sure that there will be a confrontation on the bridge, but from afar, you watch on in disbelief as they approach the Missourians, and, not saying a thing, simply walk past them, the butts of their pistols clearly visible above the waistlines. These men must be crazy, you think, or brave, crazily brave. The Missourians must have thought the same thing, They look at each other, none of them sure of how to deal with such obviously brazen and armed men. John Brown and his party carry on towards Lawrence. The next day the standoff comes to an end. Governor Shannon has been able to negotiate a settlement between the two parties. The charges of insurrection against Lawrence are officially dropped so long as the town agrees to help Sheriff Jones in any legal action he takes against Branson and all other lawbreakers in Douglas County. You don't think you can safely return there anymore, so when you see John Brown and his men leaving the city the next day, you approach them this time and ask if you can join them. They seem more like your kind of people, not caught up in petty ideas of racial supremacy. Brown looks at you sternly, his eyes piercing you intensely. He almost looks like some kind of biblical prophet, his pepper and salt beard catching glints of the Kansan sun. Okay, he says, we're going to Osawatomie. The start of 1856 sees a couple of things happen. With smears and jeers, President Pierce fiercely endears himself to peers whose tears and fears come from abolitionist cheers. He declares that the anti-slavery Topeka legislature is in revolution against the legitimate Kansas government, meaning that your tactic of joining the Missourians to stuff the ballot boxes has received the president's stamp of approval. Also around the same time, a steady stream of fellow Southerners has started to roll into Kansas, pushing the pro-slavery presence slightly beyond that of the abolitionist scum. A lawyer in Alabama called Jefferson Buford, has made a public call for those who are able to bear arms to go to Kansas. He and others have promised to finance the travel and homesteads of each person who signs up. Buford himself has decided to make a huge personal sacrifice and sells 40 of his own slaves to cover these costs. 
The winter has been tougher on the abolitionists than on you pro-slavery settlers. Their harvests were pathetic, no less their homesteads. You and your lot, combined with the elements, have managed to drive many of them out of Kansas and back to from whence they'd come. In April, Buford assembles 400 settlers in his state's capital, Montgomery, mainly men from Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama. They set off in a caravan of indignation and pride, determined to rescue their civilization from the threat that they knew loomed from the north. In May, this so-called Buford Expedition arrives in Kansas, still showing the signs that they'd attached to their wagons. Ones that you read include Kansas, the outpost, and another, the supremacy of the white race. You look around at all these fresh settlers, Considering how hostile the continued conflicts have been, even through the winter, this is certainly a welcome addition of force. The anti-slavery continued are becoming desperate as the balance of numbers starts to tilt towards your pro-slavery lot. You don't know this, but that trend will reverse. By the end of the year, most of the Buford expedition will have returned back to their home state, and the whole thing will have turned into a financial failure. The continued emigration of northerners will eventually bring their presence into the ascendancy, but not before you and your ilk, bolstered by this Buford expedition, will make an impact. Sheriff Jones has not let up on the Branson incident, where some brazen anti-slavery settlers had stolen a prisoner from him and his men before winter. He is itching to go into Lawrence, particularly to seek the arrest of one man he knows was a part of the crime, a man named Wood. One day, you are asked to join the posse, and on horseback, you all approach the town. You dismount, tether your horses, and then you check your arms. In the town, the sheriff spots Wood, the man he is looking for. He approaches him and calmly tells him that he is under arrest by the authority of the sheriff of Douglas County, and that he is to accompany you all back to Lecompton, the new territorial capital of the duly elected and now federally backed official pro-slavery capital. The man looks you all over, and he shrugs and says, I recognize no such authority. With that, he walks away. None of you move to accost him, but instead all look to the sheriff for direction. He seems as puzzled by the man's pure gumption as the rest of you. His face reddens, which he obviously realizes, as he hurriedly tugs down on his hat and walks off back to the horses. He says nothing the whole return ride. He orders you all to return the next day though, this time with a bigger group and intent on arresting Wood regardless of whatever authority he may or may not recognize. When you arrive there, there is no sign of him anywhere and nobody even admits to knowing of anyone by that name. The sheriff is livid. He turns to the federal government who by this time having recognized the legitimacy of the Lecompton, your legislature, is able to lend a hand. The sheriff is legitimately the sheriff, and the people of Lawrence are obstructing his maintaining order and justice. So going to Governor Shannon, he implores the use of federal troops in enforcing the law. A few days later, at the head of these troops, Sheriff Jones goes into Lawrence and arrests six free staters there. Basically, in front of the whole town's seething population. He was intent on showing them the might of his law. Except the next morning, you are stunned 
when you read the headline in Squatters Sovereign. The abolitionists in open rebellion, Sheriff Jones murdered by the traitors. You read how, after making the arrest, he had been sitting in his tent that night and some abolitionist devil had shot him from the outside. You imagine the silhouette of his body slumping by the candlestick that would have flickered on. By the time you learn days later, though, that Jones did not die, but is in fact recovering, this kind of image has caused blood fever in you and all of your compatriots. Everybody is talking about, suggesting, and aching to go and burn down Lawrence. In May, the grand jury of the Lecompton legislature indicts several of Lawrence's leaders. The Free State Hotel and the printing presses in the town are then declared public nuisances to be destroyed. You cheer with others as the rulings are read out. And so it is that days later, you and 800 others stand in your practice military formation that you've been drilling in since the arrival of the Buford expedition. Jones is there, fighting fit, and next to him, on horseback, sits David R. Atchison, the senator, border ruffian, and veteran of the previous standoff at Lawrence. Like a general of old, he speaks out to you in preparation for what is about to be done. His sentences are punctuated by appropriate cheers and yells from you and your brethren as he whips you into a frenzy. He begins. Gentlemen, officers, and soldiers. This is the most glorious day of my life. This is the day I am a border ruffian. The US Marshal has just given you his orders and has kindly invited me to address you. For this invitation, coming from no less than U.S. authority, I thank him most sincerely. And now allow me, in true Border Ruffian style, to extend to you the right hand of fellowship. Men of the South, I greet you as Border Ruffian brothers. At this, you all cheer even louder than before and wave your hats in the air above your heads. He goes on to tell you how, although older than you, He is still one of you, a ruffian and a son of the South. And then he gets to your objective, to the mission of the day's work. Now, boys, let your work be well done. Faint not as you approach the city of Lawrence, but remembering your mission, act with true Southern heroism and, at the word, spring like your bloodhounds at home upon that damned accursed abolition hole. Break through everything that may oppose your never-flinching courage. Yes, ruffians, draw your revolvers and bowie knives and cool them in the heart's blood of all those damned dogs that dare defend that damned breathing hole of hell. Tear down their boasted free state hotel, and if those hellish lying free solars have left no portholes in it, with your unerring cannon make some. Yes, riddle it till it shall fall to the ground. Throw into the Kansas their printing presses, and let's see if any more free speeches will be issued from them. Boys, do the marshal's full bidding. Do the sheriff's entire command. For today, Mr. Jones is not only sheriff, but Deputy Marshal, so that whatever he commands will be right and under the authority of the administration of the U.S. And for it, you will be amply paid as U.S. troops, besides having an opportunity of benefiting your wardrobes from the private dealings of those infernal n***er stealers. Dude, 
It says I should cheer at this point, but can't cheer at that. I know, I know. I want to vomit. It's literally what it says. It's the script of the speech. Filthy, racist, rantalian. Courage for a few hours and the victory is ours. Falter and all is lost. Are you determined? Will every one of you swear to bathe your steel in the black blood of some of those black sons of bitches? Yes, yes! Yes, I know you will. The South has always proved itself ready for honourable fight. And you, who are noble sons of noble sires, I know that you will never fail, but will burn, sack, and destroy until every vestige of these northern abolitionists is wiped out. Men of the South and Missouri, I am proud this day. Atchison continues on in his fiery rallying cry, affirming the legitimacy of the sheriff's authority. And when he is done, Sheriff Jones leads the charge on, and you join the stampede with yelps and huzzas. The flags carried by the southern settlers into the territory are at hand, and they wave frantically above your heads. Once in town, you variously head to the house of the Robinsons, who have fled, and to the Free State Hotel. The town is sacked for printing presses, now abolished by territorial law, and those found are flung into the Kansas River as Atchison had demanded. The residents, weaker in number than a few weeks and even days ago, gather meekly, not sure what to expect. They watch as you tear their new town apart. Finally, the fort-like Free State Hotel, not having succumbed to the cannonade that you'd also flung against it, is set on fire. There's an intense and dramatic moment as you're standing at the foot of the building with a small group watching the fire take hold. You can begin to feel the heat radiating off the building as great plumes of smoke start billowing in the air. Another cannon is shot into it and great flaming chunks start to fall to the ground. You react instantly and you scramble away as others do, but one man is not so quick nor so fortunate. As if in slow motion, You see him turn helplessly to run, but a look of horrible realization sweeps across his face in the instant before a massive timber beam coiled in red-hot wire and chunks of concrete smash him into the ground. His entire torso is flattened, replaced by the beam. You and those around rush to move it, burning your hands in trying to get a hold. You then look properly at the man and realize that he is clearly dead. He is the only fatality. You do not harm the remaining residents who sit in a pathetic pile watching the destruction of the place that they had labored so hard to build. You see Atchison, who despite his earlier words is demanding that Sheriff Jones rein his men in. Jones pays scant attention. When things do calm down, you all gather your horses and ride back to Lecompton, triumphant. Flags are waving, horse hooves are thundering, and the men atop. A whooping in delight. So, by now, there has been a complete breakdown of law and order in Kansas. Two competing legislatures exist claiming to represent the popular sovereignty of the territory. The hope of finding a political solution to the conflict has long gone, as the tools of debate have moved from being words and reason to bowie knives and guns. After this break, we will see how this is the case not only on the frontier, but also in the center of power in the country, the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. 
Roughly 24 hours after the sack of Lawrence, on the 22nd of May, 1856, the violence of the frontier would arrive in Washington, D.C. Charles Sumner, a tall and broad-chested abolitionist and Republican senator from Massachusetts, had a few days before delivered a mighty and long speech to the Senate, one that was laden with vitriol towards slavery, as well as derogatory contempt for those who engaged in its practice and upheld its institution. This meant the slave power, which was the name given to the perceived political stranglehold of slave interests on federal power. In particular, Sumner took aim at two people, both senators, Stephen A. Douglas, the fierce advocate of popular sovereignty and lover of trains, and Andrew Butler, a South Carolinian senator. Both these men had mockingly attacked Sumner for his opposition to the Fugitive Slave Act and the Kansas-Nebraska Act. This epic speech, which took five hours, delivered over two days, was titled, The Crime Against Kansas. Sumner was a big man, and easily noticeable, but he had particularly stood out in the Senate chamber on the second day of his delivery, a day on which the place was packed to the rafters. It had been a hot day, and the tension had been thick. Whereas the vast majority of senators in there dressed in traditional black cloaks, Sumner cut a figure in an English tweed jacket and lavender trousers. But he would be defying more than just a decent fashion sense on this day because he delivered a powerful speech intended to shock and enrage his opponents, in which he compared the acts of pro-slavery southern settlers in Kansas to the sexual abuse of female African slaves by their white southern masters. It was being heavily implied by abolitionists that slave masters wanted to continue the institution, mainly so that they could continue to keep their sex slaves. He said, quote, It is the rape of a virgin territory compelling it to the hateful embrace of slavery. And it may be clearly traced to a depraved longing for a new slave state, the hideous offspring of such a crime, in the hope of adding to the power of slavery in the national government. Force has been openly employed in compelling Kansas to this pollution and all for the sake of political power. End quote. This speech was not just to denounce the institution, but was very much argumentum ad hominem or as we say in Australian rules football terminology, Sumner went for the man and not the ball. He continued, quote, The senator from South Carolina, he's speaking about Butler here, has read many books of chivalry and believes himself a chivalrous knight with sentiments of honour and courage. Of course, he has chosen a mistress to whom he has made his vows and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot, slavery. For her, his tongue is always profuse in words. End quote. Stephen A. Douglas, who during the speech was called a, quote, brutal, vulgar man without delicacy or scholarship, who looks as if he needs clean linen and should be put under a shower bath, end quote, was heard to mumble at the back of the chamber during the speech that, this damn fool is going to get himself killed by some other damn fool. That other damn fool, Preston Brooks, strode into the Senate chamber defiantly two days later on the 22nd of May, with a heavy cane in one hand and extraordinarily violent intentions in mind. Brooks was the cousin of Senator Butler, 
the man in bed with the harlot slavery, according to Sumner. And he was a member of the House of Representatives. As he approached Sumner from behind, he looked over his shoulder to see that he was proudly signing copies of the Crime Against Kansas speech to send them out across the country. He declared, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over carefully. It is libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler, who is a relative of mine. Sumner began to stand, but before he could even get to his feet, Brooks lifted a gold-headed cane and delivered a thunderous blow to Sumner's head, which immediately blinded him, leaving his head and face covered in blood. Brooks wasn't nearly finished, though, as he continued to rain dozens of blows down on Sumner, who was by this time trapped between his desk, chair, and the ground, bellowing in a way that others would later describe as being like a calf. In an act of animalistic desperation, Brooks managed to stand enough to get a hold of his desk and, mustering the kind of superhuman strength one gets when fighting for their life, ripped his desk from the ground into which it had been bolted. Stumbling blindly with blood covering his eyes, Charles Sumner began to make his way up the aisle, but this just made him a bigger target for Brooks, who continued beating him even after his cane had snapped in half. A few senators tried to intervene to help protect Sumner, but they were held back with people saying, let them alone, goddamn you, let them alone. Brooks would later be arrested for this attack. His punishment, a $300 fine, which considering the severity of the crime was extremely lenient. He survived being expelled from the House of Representatives, but he resigned his seat anyway so as to allow a special election in which his constituents could themselves judge his actions. They overwhelmingly voted him back into power. For months afterwards, his giddy supporters sent him canes with messages inscribed saying things like, hit him again. On the other side of the divide, the beating galvanized people in the North, possibly more than anything up until then. The Atlas newspaper from Boston editorialized that, quote, the reign of terror then is to be transferred to Washington, and the mouths of the representatives of the North are to be closed by the use of Bowie knives, bludgeons, and revolvers. End quote. Two weeks later, the poet and philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson eloquently described how irreconcilable the divide really was. He said, quote, I do not see how a barbarous community and a civilized community can constitute one state. I think we must get rid of slavery or we must get rid of freedom, end quote. The caning of Charles Sumner and how it was received in the opposing societies was a stark example that the fragmentation of the Union over slavery was being reflected violently at all levels of society. But while Southerners supported and validated the violence of Brooks against Sumner, who, despite his injuries, actually survived the attack, they were about to learn that well, there were people on the anti-slavery side who were just as willing to use violence in the name of their cause. And so with that, let's return to Kansas and see how you, a free state settler, will respond to the news of the caning of Charles Sumner. You and the other of John Brown's men stand on a hill not far from Lawrence, which is clearly a flame. You'd ridden through the night to try to protect the town once you'd received word of the huge gathering of pro-slavery fighters outside of it, but you had not arrived on time. As the sun rises overhead, the smoke haze emanating from the smoldering Free State Hotel hangs over the town. 
a rider comes galloping across the plains towards you. You all quickly get into formation and point your weapons at this unknown person, taking him into your custody. The man asks who you are, and when you reply that you are free state men, coming to the defense of Lawrence, he pulls out a piece of paper from his bootleg, exclaiming, you are the men I want to see as I have a hurry up call for you, and hands the paper over. The note implores you to make haste and save the city. It is only then that the writer looks over the other side of the hill and sees the blackened remains of Lawrence. The writer brings other news too. Apparently, an abolitionist senator named Charles Sumner has been beaten almost to death in Washington, D.C., in the Senate chamber itself. This news is met with mixed reactions by the men in your camp. Some go weak at the knees, certain that the Southerners now have you whipped. Others, however, are more resolved than ever about what must now be done. The main one of these is John Brown. It didn't take long for you to learn why men followed John Brown. You had never met someone whose radicalism in the cause of abolition was greater than your own until you met him. He stands tall, unflinching, and certain in every intent he displays and action he takes. As you sit by the fire one evening alongside him, you are blown away by the ferocity with which he speaks about the plight of slaves and the blight of slavery. Brown knows the Bible inside out, evident by his frequent recitings of verses. At night, he and his sons implore you all to discussions about passages and the relevant morality regarding slavery and why it must die. Brown puts a particular focus on the Old Testament, and he's not shy of invoking violence for the cause of the good and righteous. To him, the sack of Lawrence and the caning of Charles Sumner demand revenge. As the Bible puts it, and as Brown recites almost to himself as you all stand there bearing witness to the destruction of Lawrence, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Brown decides that those who seek to kill your suffering people should themselves be killed, and in such a manner as should be likely to cause a restraining fear. Life, eye, tooth, hand, and foot are all taken the next night. Brown gathers a team of volunteers, which includes some of his sons, a local shopkeeper, and yourself, for a mission to enact retribution upon residents living on the Potawatomi Creek, nearby a notorious pro-slavery town called Palmyra. Men there had been amongst the fiercest combatants and perpetrators in the misdeeds committed unto you and your kind, and now they will pay. None of you except Brown are sure of the details of the plan, but he has arranged a wagon and ensures that you all bring guns and swords, so it seems clear that there is going to be some kind of violence. The wagon brings you out there, dropping you off to then make your way on foot to a vantage point, where from a distance to your target, you lie low in the long grass, until about 10 in the evening. At Brown's signal, you begin to make your way towards the first homestead. He splits you into three teams, two lookouts and a task group, which includes himself. The task group approaches the boundary of the property when suddenly two dogs appear at a charge, barking furiously. The men react by bringing their swords quickly down upon the two dogs, killing one and driving the other off in a hurry of whimpers. Everybody stops in their tracks, waiting to see if the commotion caused any alarm. Silence indicates that it did not. Brown reaches and knocks on the door, 
When it opens, the men force their way in, accost the man, named Doyle, and two of his sons, young men in their twenties. They are brought outside, where all of you gather around them. Without a word being spoken, Brown's sons commence what becomes a bloody flurry of butchery, hacking away at the head, hands, and legs of the father and his sons. Afterwards, everybody is shocked and shaking and motionless, except for John Brown, who calmly goes over to the limp body of Doyle and puts a bullet through his head for good measure. This is unrepentant violence of the kind you've never seen. Although Brown hadn't himself done the hacking, the shot through the head is a clear indication of his willingness to get blood on his own hands. He then leads you on to the next house, about half a mile away. The owner here, named Wilkinson, does not immediately open the door, so eventually Brown issues the threat of force and violence upon him and his family if he does not surrender to what Brown proclaims is the Northern Army. Wilkinson opens the door, at which point he is taken outside, and met with the same fate as his neighbours, the Doyles. The next target is Dutch Henry's Tavern on the north bank of the creek. The two Sherman brothers, Henry and William, are giant men and violent southerners. Waking up everyone in the cabin and holding them hostage, you learn that Henry is not there, but William is. A couple of unknown men with unknown sympathies are interrogated and, satisfying Brown with their answers, are released. William Sherman, known as Dutch Bill, however, is taken to the creek to have an axe introduced to his skull. Brown ensures that when you raid all the houses, you take any useful items you can. Afterwards, with horses taken from Dutch Bill, loaded with saddles and weapons, you all quietly walk back to your camp. On the way back, you stop to wash in the creek. One of John Brown's sons, walks off by himself, but you can still hear his sobbing over the trickle of the stream. You have been seething in the days since your kinsmen were slaughtered by the outlaw John Brown and his sons. It didn't matter that you didn't know the men who were killed. They were on your side, and this could have happened to any one of you. You will have your revenge. You are riding with a posse of men when you come across a man walking alone on a path. One of your men yells out, You are one of the men we are looking for. Your name is Brown. Pistols are cocked into position and pointed directly at him. He begins to slowly step backwards and says, My name is Jason Brown. I am a free state man and what you call an abolitionist. I have never knowingly injured a human being. Now, if you want my blood for that, there is a mark for you. With those words, he pulls open his shirt and exposes his chest as a target for all of you. You are pretty impressed by his show of bravery, and you and others are uncertain as to whether or not to believe his appeal of innocence. So you bound him up and force him to run in front of your horses towards Baptistville. When your company arrives, you are swarmed by throngs of men, crying, Swing him up! A rope is thrown over a tree branch, and it seems like the mob will have its way, regardless of whether this man is guilty or not. But just as his head is being put through the noose, a man pushes through the crowd and admonishes them for this ugly display. He is a territorial judge and a prominent local slaveholder himself. But unlike the crowd, he still believes in the judicial process. He takes Jason Brown into custody to await trial. Years later, you will learn of Jason Brown recounting that this experience completely changed his mind towards Southerners and slaveholders, saying, 
I can't see a southerner or a southern soldier now, whatever he thinks of me, without wanting to grasp his two hands. The next few days are a blur as you join various other posses on the hunt for John Brown and his group. Another of his sons is captured, found wandering aimlessly in a delusional state after hiding in a ravine for days. But of the old man himself, there is no sign to be found. By now, the end of May, 56, free state settlers were not only becoming evidently more numerous, but also more violent. It seems that Brown, by murdering the five men, and although publicly admonished on both sides, has set a standard of violence for abolitionists which previously only your pro-slavery contingent had met. In some towns, the massacre at the Pottawatomie Creek prompted an opposing reaction by both pro- and anti-slavery settlers, who decided to meet and resolve that they would not resort to violence in contending their views with each other. In some instances, they even joined forces to stop the infringements by border ruffians on northern homesteads and properties. But this kind of cooperation is certainly not the norm. You join up with a man named Henry Clay Pate, who is leading a company of Missourians called Shannon's Sharpshooters, around 60 strong. On the morning of the 2nd of June, you are camped at Blackjack Springs when a scout comes rushing into your camp with the news that you've all been waiting for. John Brown and the murderers from Pottawatomie are in the vicinity, and they are preparing to attack. Everybody assumes defensive positions and waits in anticipation. A line of men break through the tree line and run out onto the plateau before you, but you are ready. You open fire upon them, and they break into two, running for cover and obviously attempting to flank your position. For hours, you trade shots with them, and a number of your men are killed and more wounded. And as ammunition runs low, lots of your previously determined compatriots decide to hightail it back towards Missouri during gaps in the shooting. You have no idea how many free state men you're up against, but when a rider suddenly appears shouting, Father, Father, we have them surrounded, you come to the conclusion that the battle is lost. Henry Pate has come to the same conclusion, and so he orders you to come with him and hold aloft a white handkerchief so that he can begin negotiations. As you approach the free state line, you are met by an old man who you suppose must be this notorious murderer, John Brown. Pate says, I come out to tell you that we are government officers sent out in pursuit of criminals and to let you know that you are fighting against the United States. Brown replies coolly, If this is all you have to say, I have something to say to you. I demand of you an unconditional surrender. After a brief defiant moment, Brown backs up his words with the barrel of his gun held to Pate's chest. Pate surrenders, and the two of you are followed by some of Brown's men back to your lines, where he orders the 20-something men left to surrender their arms. It is not until you are brought back to the free state camp that you realize that you have just surrendered to 12 men. The humiliation cuts deep. Negotiations are conducted over that evening for a prisoner exchange. As you are marched back by Brown towards a nearby free state city, you are intercepted by a colonel named Edwin Sumner, commander of the forces from the U.S. Army base at Fort Leavenworth. It reads out orders he has been given to disperse all illegal militia operating in Kansas. John Brown demands the conditions of the prisoner exchange be honoured, to which Sumner responds that he is not there to negotiate prisoner releases. Henry Pate demands that John Brown be arrested because he is a known outlaw, which Sumner duly ignores. 
Colonel Sumner is a cousin of Charles Sumner, who is still recovering after having been beaten almost to death only two weeks before. He has no time for any of this and is disgusted by the lawlessness of Kansas. John Brown reluctantly concedes to his demands, and you are released into the custody of the U.S. Army. For the past 18 months, you have witnessed the settling of Kansas, which has turned into a battleground of worldviews and principles. You'd arrived with the intent of starting anew, buying land, becoming rich, and along the way, ensuring the preservation of you and your people's way of life. Instead, you become a part of what you see as a scandal of civilization, embroiled in a conflict in which the army of the country, whose laws you have been fighting to uphold, is now actively breaking up the men you had been fighting both with and against. You are left to wonder whether the dream you had of what Kansas might have been would even have been worth the bloodshed that it had become. Even though John Brown's prisoner exchange plan did not work, you are all pretty ecstatic at the victory you achieved at Black Jack Springs. But although the army dispersed all militia forces, the violence has not abated. Months later, in August, while camped near Osawatomie, a messenger arrives with the tragic news that one of John Brown's sons, Frederick, has been shot dead by a band of invading Missourians. You look at Brown who shows as little reaction as he had to the previous news that two of his sons had been captured. What he does do, is begin saddling his horse, and then he indicates that you should all do the same, for you are going to battle. Together you ride off to meet the pro-slavery forces, which, upon your approach, begin firing. You take up position, and for 15 minutes or so, there is smoke and noise across the grassy fields. Several of your men are hit, and eventually the Missourians charge your positions which become impossible to hold. You are forced to scatter. In the process, you feel a sharp sting in your leg. You consider maybe a snake lay in your path, but while running, you notice a thick blood trail flowing down your leg. Adrenaline is pumping through your body, so still you run and run and run into the woods. Eventually, thinking you are maybe far enough away, you shelter down behind a fallen log. Breathing heavily, you inspect your wound. A bullet has grazed your lower thigh fortunately doing no greater damage than making you feel queasy. You pull off your soiled old shirt and tie it tightly around the wound. Resting your head back against the log, you think about what had become of your plans to start anew. You'd even left your wife and children behind in Vermont, sure that participating in the political process and thereby helping to ensure that freedom reigned throughout the land was the right thing to do. Instead, you'd become embroiled in a war. You wonder what your wife and children would think of the action you had been a part of. You're really tired and have felt so for months. The sharp pain in your leg has started to become a dull throb. You stretch it out, close your eyes and let out a long, deep sigh. As you fall asleep, the horizon glows in the direction of Osawatomie, as the town is burnt to the ground by the Missourians. The next morning you awake and begin the slow walk back towards the burned-out ruins of Osawatomie. John Brown and one of his many sons stand next to each other, 
looking out at the burned remains of the buildings and the groups of terrified and now homeless women and children who are standing nearby. Brown doesn't even acknowledge your presence as he is pacing back and forth, sermonizing to his son. In the months that you've known John Brown, you've always known that he was intense, but you've never seen him in a mood like this. Suddenly, he stops, and with a new look of clarity in his eyes, he exclaims, God sees it! There will be no more real peace in this country till the slavery question is settled. I have no feelings of revenge towards the people of the South. I have but a little while to live, and but one death to die. I will die fighting slavery. With that, you watch him mount his horse, expecting his sons to follow him. Together they set off back to the camp. You will soon learn what he intends to do. John Brown is going south, and he's going to take the war against slavery with him. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. The period in American history that we've been talking about in this episode, known as Bleeding Kansas, was but a bloody prelude to the violence that would erupt in the Civil War just a few years later. After the Battle of Osawatomie, John Brown left Kansas and a new governor named John Geary was able to hold together a fragile peace which lasted for the next few years. Figures vary, but up to 200 people are thought to have lost their lives during the violence between 1854 and 58 in Kansas. The abolitionist settlers had been rebelling against the laws of the country which they believed to be morally wrong, whilst the pro-slavery side resisted the very real threat the Northerners posed to their way of life. All the while, Native American people were once again forced off their lands without any equivalent moral outrage from the general public. Kansas would eventually be admitted into the Union as a free state on January 29, 1861. By this time, the battle lines had taken hold across the country. As southern states began to secede from the Union, starting in December 1860, the senators in the capital were no longer there to block the approval of an anti-slavery Kansas constitution. In the next episode, we will go back and follow the life of John Brown from his childhood through to his attempt to bring down slavery by force, basically by himself, with his unsuccessful raid on a US arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, argued to be a catalyzing event for the outbreak of the Civil War. In the meantime though, check out our website where we have listed a bunch of the sources we used in the making of this episode and have a rollicking good time reading it. We became a bit obsessed with the 19th century vocabulary during the making of this episode, of which there have been many colourful examples. So, if you've got any great 19th century insults, tweet them to us, at the Stuff You Team, with the hashtag C19Insult. Finally, we'd like to give a 5-star rating to listener Billy Ardito, who did the double and reviewed us on both Facebook and iTunes. We found his reviews to be straightforward, to the point, and most of all, true. Billy is a great listener. Be like Billy. Stuff What You Tell Me is a part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. It's produced by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani.
Here's a tasty little addendum. A piece of cultural rebellion within the wider story of radical anti-slavery defiance of antebellum America. In 1855, as various organizations are trying to send settlers to Kansas, the Vegetarian Kansas Emigration Society was put together by a man named Henry S. Club. He pulled together abolitionist sentiment together with his own personal endeavor to establish an enclave for vegetarians to live communally with each other. He feared that vegetarians were isolated and that they, quote, solitary and alone in their vegetarian practice might sink into flesh-eating habits, end quote. Dispersed across the country like a lost people of broccoli and kale, he thought that they might be constantly tempted by meat. So he wanted to give them a land of milk and honey, literally. At the first meeting in May 1855, 47 vegos signed up to the plan. More than 20 said that they would probably go. They sent someone to go and scope out a good spot for this new vegetarian paradise. And when he returned with his report in January the following year, he advocated the construction of an octagonal town of high morals that would become a city with strict limitations. Those limitations would be vegetarianism and anti-slavery. When we say octagonal, by the way, we mean everything. Everything in it was supposed to be, from its houses to its streets, would be in the shape of an octagon. Kind of like the gear people in Rick and Morty, but with octagons. One settler who put his name on the list for this geometric vegetarian utopia was John Milton Hadley, a Quaker from Indiana. He showed optimism for the venture in correspondence during time staying at a Quaker mission. To him, Kansas was, quote, as nearly the equal to Palestine as any, end quote. For vegetarianism and abolition, he would settle there, quote, whereon to plant our white banner of peace and goodwill, end quote. As an aside, unfortunately, his enthusiasm could not translate into a vote against slavery. He got ill, considered that he might actually need some meat in his diet, and had to take his name off the list for the vegetarian octagonal city. The preamble for the Constitution for the Vegetarian Emigration Company of Kansas stated, quote, Whereas the practice of vegetarian diet is best adapted to the development of the highest and noblest principles of human nature and the use of the flesh of animals for food tends to the physical, moral, and intellectual injury of mankind. And it is desirable that those persons who believe in the vegetarian principle should have every opportunity to live in accordance therewith and should unite in the formation of a company for the permanent establishment in some portion of this country, of a home where the slaughter of animals for food shall be prohibited, and where the principle of the vegetarian diet can be fairly and fully tested, so as to demonstrate its advantages. End quote. Even in the 19th century, vegetarians had that smugness that people get when they know they are truly living by the morals that they espouse. Unfortunately, the morals of the vegetarian emigration company did not prevent them from making promises which they were unable to keep. When the hundred settlers arrived, they discovered that rather than having a plow each, they would have a plow. It's a bit hard to have a vegetarian paradise when you can't grow vegetables. In addition, the promised saw and grist mills had not been built. 
So the only things milling about were the people wandering around the octagonal outline of the so-called town, wondering whether this had been such a great idea. Their agony was made worse when they discovered that the mosquitoes around them definitely were not vegetarians and proceeded to consume as much of their blood as they could. By the winter, the colony had dispersed. All that remains of their spinach Shangri-La today is the name which the creek still bears, Vegetarian Creek. So if you're one of our listeners in Kansas and you happen to be driving on Highway 169, just between Petrolia and Humboldt, eat a cucumber and think of things that have eight sides. The end.